Welcome to the Energy Fellows podcast, where each episode is designed to share expertise and experiences from U.S. and global energy fellows. They provide direction and possible solutions for ultimate journey results. Here's your host, Mark Stansberry. Enabling best-in-class customer experience and operational excellence in a hyper-connected oil and gas world, TCS prioritizes problem-solving and leverages customer insights to drive real business results. To find out more, go to TCS.com. That's TCS.com. Welcome to the Energy Fellows Podcast. I'm Mark Stansberry, your host, and today we have with us Lauren Steffi. Lauren, welcome to the episode. Thank you. Good to see you. Or here well, you. my goodness. Oh, yes. Well, yeah, I hope to see you soon. It wound up that the last time, or one of the times I'd seen you, I had the honor of presenting you an award for your coverage at the Houston Chronicle for Energy, and that's been several years ago. Since then, you're a publisher, of course, an author, a columnist, and now novelist as well. And so I'm excited to have you on today. I don't think we'll be able to cover everything that I would like to cover, but we're going to try. <laughs> we're going to go after <laughs> it and try to cover quite a few things. And let's start off with, and I know that you have a, I guess it's called Putin's Oil Heist, which is a podcast. I actually wound up, I couldn't stop listening. So it was late at night and I started listening. I got through about five of the six episodes and then I passed out, <laughs> woke up the next morning and listened to the sixth episode. And you've got my interest, I'm telling you. And then I had to share it with my wife and tell her about it. She was very interested, so intrigued by it. And so we'll cover that. We'll cover several things along the way today, as much as we can in the amount we have allotted. But we'd like to start off with your background, why you got involved in, and especially covering energy, but you know your journey of life. I think it's always important, and especially for those listening, to know about the author, about your history, and what you plan on doing in the future as well. Sure. Well, uh, you know, I've spent most of my career in Texas by design because I've always told my editors and people who worked in other parts of the country who didn't understand why you would want to be a business reporter in Texas. I said, it's because Texas is the land of big stories. I still believe that. I've spent about 35 years, almost 40 years as a business reporter in various parts of the state, Dallas, Houston, now in the Austin area. And I've written for publications that include the Dallas Times-Herald, Bloomberg, as you mentioned, the Houston Chronicle, and Texas Monthly. And I just think Texas is a great place to write about business and about business people and about the economy. And it's proven to be a very, very fruitful career for me. So I'm, you know, honored, grateful, blessed to be able to be doing this. You covered a lot, and I mentioned about presenting you an award, which I was very excited to do years ago. And I still have that here on my wall, as a matter of fact. I'm you have it on the wall? Right Great. I do. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> well, energy is such an important subject these days, more than even when you were covering it. But at that time, we needed more education, and we definitely need it even now today. What guided you or directed you towards energy? Yeah, I think originally it was just being a business reporter in Texas. You wind up writing a lot about energy. But, you know, over the years, I really came to understand, you know, kind of as you alluded to there, people don't really understand how energy works. They don't understand how the energy markets work. They don't understand how, you know, gas gets to the pump, you know, when they put it in their car. They don't understand why, you know, the lights come on when you throw a switch. And so to me, that was just an area that, you know, this has a profound effect on all of our lives. It has a profound effect on our economy. And it just seemed to me like an area where there needed to be greater understanding. And as a journalist, as a nonfiction writer, you know, that was just an area that I felt like I could focus on and hopefully 
you know, create some broader understanding about what was happening. Well, I think of George Mitchell and Boone Pickens, who you both, I guess both of those individuals have written about. And I go back, I'm telling my age, I've been in the business for over 45 years now, Lauren, and it was interesting. In 1993, I attended a conference, well, NAEP, the original NAEP conference, I guess you'd say. Mm -hmm. And it was in Houston, and it was at a hotel at the time, small, much smaller than, it wasn't, couldn't fit into the convention center by any means at the time, but eventually it did. But it was George Mitchell who came up to my, I had a booth, and he came up and visited with me, and we were going over some things, and he went on, and I didn't know it was George Mitchell at the time, but a friend of mine said, nudged me, said, you know who that was? I said, yeah, it's George. <laughs> yeah, George Mitchell, Mitchell Energy. And I said, wow. Uh, so even back then, you know, it was prior to a lot of things that were going on with his horizontal drilling opportunities that he presented and things like that. And I think of Boone Pickens and others. Can you highlight, if you would, some of the, the writings that you have as far as books and so forth regarding the energy sector? Sure. Well, I mean, you mentioned George Mitchell. I wrote a biography of him, which came out in 2018, I believe it was. And, you know, what I wanted to do there was really kind of show the whole person. I mean, obviously, energy is a big part of the story. But, you know, Mitchell, to me, was a fascinating character because he just loved big ideas. There's no challenge that he thought was too big to overcome. And he really had a belief in human ingenuity. And so it went beyond energy. I mean, he was a pioneer in sustainable development. And one of the things I find fascinating about Mitchell is that in Houston, where he you know, was from, well, he was, you know, really grew up in Galveston, but Houston claims him as their own. In the Houston area, he is equally revered by people in the energy business, as well as people in the environmental community. And I think that's a really unusual characteristic. And his son, Todd, actually referred to it as the Mitchell paradox, you know, this idea that somebody could have these intense interests in both sustainable development, sustainability, and in, you know, energy production and ultimately in hydraulic fracturing, you know, just, it seems like a paradox, but I've made the case in the book that for Mitchell, these were two paths that were ultimately leading to the same place. And, you know, it was really about using human ingenuity to make the world a better place, you know, for everyone, for all living creatures. And, you know, I think that's something that doesn't get talked about a lot in sort of traditional oil and gas writing. But to me, it, it made Mitchell this kind of larger than life character. What about Boone Pickens? I know you have a book about Boone as well. Yeah. So I actually co-wrote a book called The Last Trial of T. Boone Pickens, which came out in 2020. And I wrote it with the attorney who represented him in a case in Pecos, Texas. And it was obviously towards the end of his career. He basically got cheated out of an oil and gas investment deal in the Delaware Basin. And the story is really a courtroom drama about the trial itself. But to me, one of the things that made it interesting was the interaction between the attorney, Krista Castaneda, and Boone. It really kind of offers you a glimpse of Boone at a different time in his life than a lot of the more famous stories. This was long after his corporate raider days, long after, you know, he was no longer running a big oil company. He was, you know, doing his hedge fund. And it really kind of gives you a different perspective. He reached that time in his life where he was much more self-reflective, much more willing to talk about things he, you know, mistakes he may have made or things he would do differently. And to me, it was just a whole different dynamic. I had first met Boone in probably about 1990, and I covered him through a number of different, you know, places I worked in my career. And I thought that, you know, this was really kind of a different picture of the man. But in some ways, it also kind of, you know, you got into sort of these bigger themes about the rule of law, making sure things are done right in the oil business and that sort of thing. 
but also, you know, Boone was a guy who had the means to stand up and fight this case that quite frankly, a lot of other people who have been in similar situations just aren't able to do. And so to me, it was just all the way around a really compelling story. And like I said, I love the dynamic between him and Krista because they were very, very different people, but they really saw eye to eye on this case and ultimately made it work. Could you go ahead and highlight your other books as well? We'll talk about the novel in a second, but the other books you've written. Yeah. So I also in 2021 came out with a book called Deconstructed, which is a look at undocumented immigration, illegal immigration, but really kind of told through the lens of Stan Merrick, who's a longtime construction company owner in Houston. His family business has been around for 80 years. And if you know anything about the construction industry, you know that it has always relied heavily on immigrant labor. And when you bring that forward, what I saw with Stan was an opportunity to tell his story and show how it intertwined with changes in immigration laws over the years, but then kind of bring it forward and look at where we're at today and why the system is breaking down as badly as it is and what we can do about it. You know, you really, when we were listening to the episodes, it really grabbed me. You had an ad about a novel that you've written, and that really got my attention as well. Can you tell us about the novel? That's called cross-marketing. <laughs> it's great, by the way. I, I need to incorporate well, that myself. Great job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I started my own publishing company and we did the Pickens book and then the other book, Deconstructed, that I just mentioned. And it was kind of like, well, it'd be nice to have sort of three books to kind of, you know, out in the first year just to kind of get this thing off the ground. And, you know, I had this novel that I had been kind of playing around with for a number of years and it's set in West Texas. It's called The Big Empty, and it's set in a small West Texas town that's, you know, as many West Texas towns are, it's dying. Young people are growing up and moving away, and the town leaders are trying to figure out a way to basically save their community, and they ultimately entice a large semiconductor company to set up a plant there. And the book really focuses on what ensues after that as people from outside start moving in. The townspeople who really, you know, they wanted the economic opportunity, but they worry about what the price is going to be. What are they going to have to give up? It really gets to a lot of themes that I experienced over my life as somebody who was born in a small town, grew up in relatively small communities. And, you know, as well as a lot of the things I saw covering Texas, issues around, you know, water and energy and things like that, you know, the future of ranching and, you know, the history of the state and all these other kind of things that just really had sort of, I found very fascinating. And ultimately, I think the book is about a sense of place. And I think that most of us, you know, are looking for that sense of place. And it's something we've kind of, many of us have lost touch with because in today's world, we sort of move around a lot. You know, maybe we live in the suburbs, we've got a small, you know, little postage stamp size yard or something. But that idea of belonging somewhere is something that I think people in some cases have lost and are struggling to find. And that was really kind of what I wanted to unpack with the novel. So it worked out well from the publishing standpoint to be able to put the book out. And I just found that I really enjoyed doing fiction. And I don't know if there'll be another novel or not, but I definitely am intrigued. It's a very different type of writing than what I've been used to for most of my career. And I enjoyed it an awful lot. Congratulations on that. Yes, that's quite a feat, I'm telling you. But to jump from books to novels to podcasts, all the things you're involved with, it's wonderful what you're doing. How do people get a hold of your books and novel? What's the best way? Well, the easiest way is to go to stonycreekpublishing.com. That's stony with an E-Y, stonycreekpublishing.com. And everything is kind of there in one place. 
Well, I'm looking forward to hearing more now about Putin's oil heist. (laughs) I wound up, Lauren, uh, back in the 90s, about 92, I went to Russia as part of an oil and gas delegation. There's about 20 of us. And as far as the size of the company, I was a small company and some large companies involved as well. But we met with the Minister of Energy at the time, or different leaders, equivalent to Minister of Energy, and wound up going around Russia and looking at different fields and so forth. Spent about two weeks or so. Came back and I thought, I need to be part of this, try to help free up the economy in that sense. Go and help build relationships and drill some wells and rework and all those kind of things that were necessary at the time. And so a year later, I met with Yuri Shafronik. There's four of us from the IPAA. Independent Petroleum Association of America, and there were four of us that met with him at the Russian embassy in Washington, D.C. a year later. And there were several thousand idle wells, about 30,000, 35,000 idle wells that Russia needed help with. And so Yuri Shafronik was a minister of energy at the time. And so I spent some time in Russia off and on working with trying to develop opportunities. And about 98, 99, I started getting less interested in the fact that I felt very uncomfortable things were changing. I felt that didn't know at the time that there was a certain leader stepping in because it had been under Gorbachev and then Yeltsin and then comes along, you know, Putin. And so it winds up that I definitely started getting disinterested. I called my partner. I said, it doesn't feel as safe. It doesn't feel as opportunities are kind of dwindling in a sense, far secure. And so we backed out about 1998, 99. And glad we did. Now that I've heard some of the podcast episodes, I go, wow, I made the right decision for sure. Even though there were so many great opportunities in Russia for the future, and I looked at it as an opportunity to free the market up and to help look at, you know, year after the coups when we visited in 92, and then about seven, eight years later, it seemed like it was reverting back to the days of old. Putin's oil heist. Tell us, you know, maybe highlight each episode a little bit along the way, however you want to do that. But I'm intrigued by it. I can say, well, it really hit. I want to go back and listen to it again. It was fascinating. (laughs) Well, thank you. Yeah, it really is an amazing story. And the backdrop is exactly what you describe. I mean, in the 1990s, after the fall of the Soviet Union, you know, Russia was seen as this huge opportunity by companies in the West and especially by oil companies because obviously Russia had vast oil reserves and they needed technological help to develop them and that kind of thing. And so there was this really sort of incredible optimism around Russia and the fact that, you know, communism had fallen and the economy was opening up and all of that. And the story is really about a guy named Bruce Missamore, who was an oil company executive in Houston. He'd worked at Pennzoil as well as Marathon before that. And Bruce had spent some time internationally in London and whatnot, but he had settled in Houston. And after Pennzoil or what became Penn's Energy, you know, they spun off Pennzoil, it became Penn's Energy, and then they got sold to Devon. And so he basically, you know, retired at a pretty early age and he was kind of looking for his next thing and he wanted it to be something different. He wanted it to be something where he could really have a big impact. And through, you know, various connections, he heard that an oil company in Russia called Yukos was looking for a chief financial officer. And Yukos was one of the biggest companies in Russia, one of the biggest oil companies in Russia. It was controlled by Mikhail Hartikovsky, who was, you know, one of the oligarchs. And Hartikovsky's approach was, you know, he kind of had a reputation as a bad boy, as many of the oligarchs did when things were, you know, sort of reshuffling in Russia. But he, by the early 2000s, he really had decided that he wanted to do things right. And he wanted to make Yukos the first true Russian international oil company. And so to do that, he needed 
Western governance standards, Western accounting standards, and he needed an executive who could make that happen. And ultimately, he hired Bruce to do that, and Bruce and his wife moved to Russia. And the story is really about what happened next. Hartikovsky had some political aspirations. Putin began to see him as a threat. Ultimately, Putin had him arrested, thrown in prison in Siberia. And the rest of the story is really about Bruce and the other executives trying to save the company and trying to, to keep it afloat and preserve the interest of you know shareholders, many of whom were Americans, but a lot of whom were also Russian citizens. And it really kind of launches this case of international intrigue that spans the globe and, you know, dozens of court cases all over the place and all the various maneuvers that they went through to try to keep Putin from seizing the company. And I had first talked to Bruce about this story back in the late, you know, probably around 2009 or so, not too long after it happened. And then, you know, we kind of stayed in touch over the years. And when the situation in Ukraine happened, Bruce was like, you know, really, you know, excited about the idea of doing a book to tell his story. And because as he saw it, and this is something we emphasize in the podcast, you know, the fall of Yukos and and the fact that Putin, you know, aggressively went after the company, tried to level these tax claims against it and whatnot to basically drive it out of business. That was his first attempt to test Western governments to see what they would do. And they really didn't do much. And that emboldened him to then go on and become much more aggressive in terms of, you know, invading other countries, taking more liberties with, you know, financial crimes and things like that. So it was really kind of the first test and the West failed it. And as a result, you know, you can draw a direct line from that instance to where we are with Ukraine today. And that was really kind of what we tried to do with the podcast. And it seemed like the time was right, given the geopolitical environment that we're in, to revisit the story. And, you know, I suggested that we do it as a podcast because when we first started talking about it in the spring, you know, we weren't sure how long the situation was going to last in Ukraine. And I said, you know, we can't get a book out fast enough. You know, we want to do something while this is still in the news. And so we decided to do a podcast first, which was a lot of fun to do. And I think Bruce really enjoyed it as well. You know, we're hopeful that we're working on a book at the moment, and hopefully that will be forthcoming. Like I said, it was well received by me for sure. It was, it's wonderful. And I hope others will definitely go to either, I guess, under Lauren Steffi or under Putin's oil heist. Is there any other way to? If you search on Putin's oil heist or you go to the Stony Creek website, you can find it there. Or if you, you know, if you use any, you know, Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or any of the major podcast platforms, if you search on it, you can find it that way. Well, it definitely shows us 30-year history, where we were in 1992, at least a year after the coup, and then up to now, and what's still going on. I understand there's still litigation, things going on to this day. Is that right? Yeah. yeah Absolutely. It's yeah. It's, you know, these things, if you know anything about the way Russians conduct business, especially when they get into these adverse situations, they have a real habit of drawing out, you know, the legal cases and whatnot. I actually just got done reading Red Notice by Bill Browder, who you know, was a, a hedge fund manager who operated in Russia and, and ran afoul of the Kremlin and in some ways had a very similar experience, although perhaps a little more dramatic than Bruce's experience. But, you know, one of the things that did happen to Bruce that kind of became the focal point of the podcast is that he had a strange break-in in his house in, you know, north of Houston in about 2006, I believe it was. And, you know, they called the sheriff. The sheriff came out and he said, do you have any idea who would have done this? And Bruce was like, have you heard of the KGB? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the sheriff thought he was crazy, yeah. but the only thing they took was a laptop that Bruce had used when he was at Yukos. So, 
you know, given that it was a pretty nice house and there's probably other things that are worth stealing, you know, it was a very suspicious robbery. But, you know, if you know anything about the Russians and how they operate, you know, these kinds of things happen. It's really, you know, it sounds like something out of a movie, but it's really pretty shocking. Well, it was interesting. About 20 years after it pulled out of, well, actually since it was 92, so about 20 years later after 92, I was asked to go back to the Russia embassy, Russian embassy in Washington, D.C., there were three Americans to be on a panel and three from Russia. And so when I got into the embassy, someone spoke to me and said, be sure you don't mention, or you can mention, but be sure not to criticize our leader. I had never been told something like that before. And I was thinking, I am in a sovereign location. <laughs> I definitely am not going to say anything about a certain leader. <laughs> and so I kept on point, thinking the whole time, I'm hoping that I get to go out of the building back down the street to the hotel in D.C. because <laughs> at that point in time, it was concerning, you know, to be thinking that you can't say anything unless it's very positive, even if no criticism along the way. So things have changed, no question about it, since the Gorbachev, Yeltsin, especially to Putin. You know, it, it's something as Americans we kind of take for granted, you know, the ability that you can go to an event like that. And if you want to criticize the president or criticize exactly. federal policy or whatever, you can do it. And there's another moment in the story where Bruce is in London at a conference and he gets a call from one of his associates saying, you know, don't come back to Moscow. You're going to be arrested. And, you know, he had to kind of decide what to do. His wife was still in Russia. You know, would, would she be able to get out? And they had kind of prepared for the possibility that that might happen. But it's very jarring. And it's not something that even a lot of business executives are used to dealing with. You know, when you suddenly realize that the power of the sovereign state is aligned against you and, you know, the Russians have a lot of resources, not just in Russia, but around the world. And it can be a scary situation. No question about it. I went to the Institute on Political and Economic Systems at Georgetown University way before 92 <laughs> and did back in the 70s. And Lev Dobryansky, who was Ukrainian, wrote a book called USA and the Soviet Myth, and pretty well told the story back even at that time. And that's why I was hoping, though, because I kept in touch with him after attending the Institute. When I did go to Russia, I reached out to him and told him I'm hoping good things can come about in Russia and freedom and a free market and so forth. It wound up that, of course, goes trying to go back to what his book was telling about, the Soviet efforts versus the Russian efforts. So, well, again, I encourage everyone, everyone to definitely get a hold of that podcast and the books and on and on. And my goodness, it's fascinating. <laughs> I'm very encouraged by it. And like I said, I'm going to go back and listen to it again because it's just so intriguing. Part of history of the past, but current history as well. And so please, stonycreekpublishing.com, I believe is correct. That's it. That's it. That's wonderful. What words of encouragement do you have for those? There's some of their upcoming leaders in the energy industry, and there's some that are probably looking at being a journalist, hopefully covering many of those covering energy <laughs> and other issues like that. You know, what words of encouragement do you have and where do they go? I mean, how do you become involved that way? I'm not sure I know the answer when it comes to journalism these days, because everything has changed so much since I started out. Yeah, I think that in some ways there's more opportunity out there than ever for young journalists. But at the same time, I think it's harder to build a career. I think it's harder to find long-term, you know, place to stay long-term where you can support yourself and support your family. So there's a lot of challenges, but, you know, the same rules apply when it comes to the work itself, which is, you know, you've got to make sure that things are accurate. You've got to, you know, 
put in the time and the work to nail down the story and, you know, talk to the right people and vet your sources. And, you know, there's an old saying in journalism, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. And, you know, you've (laughs) got to learn to be a bit of a skeptic when it comes to things that people tell you. And I think it's easy to get fooled today with social media and, you know, it's getting harder and harder to tell fiction from reality. But, you know, journalists still have an important role to play. And even though the, you know, how the news is disseminated changes a lot, I think the basics of the business stay the same. I had a lot of mentors along the way, Lauren, and that really, to this day, back when I was younger, much younger, and even from grade school, high school, college, I had mentors that reached out where I could reach out to them. I felt comfortable to do that. Did you have mentors like that along the way? And can you share some of those mentors, either a name or at least what they provided you in your pathway? Well, certainly I had a professor when I was in school at at Texas A&M, a professor named Don Sneed, who he was a journalism professor, but he sort of taught me that, you know, you just sort of charge forward in the sense that I was working for the school paper. He had written a few op-eds for the Houston Post and he got to know the opinion page editor down there. And he said, he said, Hey, these are really great guys. You write a good column. You should send them your column. And I thought, you know, what are they going to publish a column from a college kid? But, you know, I decided to go ahead and give it a try. And he really encouraged me to do it. And and guess what? They did publish it. And so, you know, then I would occasionally send them things when I thought it was something they'd be interested in. And I had, you know, a fair number of columns published in the Houston Post by the time I graduated and had a few in the Dallas Morning News. And, you know, so he really kind of taught me that don't make any assumptions. Don't, you know, close doors in your own face, make other people close them for you, you know, make other people tell you no was kind of, I think the way he used to put it, that really had a profound impact on how I looked at things. And then I guess the other person who was sort of a mentor and inspiration, there's a writer, uh, I believe she's now out in Glen Rose, but she wrote for the Dallas Morning News for many years. Her name was Catherine Jones. She actually covered the defense and technology beat at the Dallas Times Herald and then made the jump to the morning news. And I found myself competing against her. When I got to the Herald, I was competing against her on the same beat. You know, she was not only helpful to me in terms of learning the beat and just giving me good advice on how to do the job, but after the Times Herald went out of business and I found myself out of work, she had, I guess, left the morning news and had started a freelance career. And I remember we went to lunch and it's funny because she doesn't remember saying this at all, but it really had a huge impact on me. She said the secret to, you know, being a good freelancer is that you need to always be looking for work when you have more work than you can handle because you have to keep that pipeline full basically, right? And not only did it help me in terms of my freelance career that I suddenly found myself forced to be in, fortunately only for a few months, but nevertheless, it helped me with that. But I found that it was also true everywhere I worked, you know, when you're trying to do stories, when you're doing enterprise stories and stuff, you're always looking for more. No matter how much you have on your plate, you got to always keep looking for that next story coming down the road. And it really is something that's kind of become a rule that I live by. So, you know, I know she would be embarrassed if she hears this, she's going to be embarrassed that I called her a mentor, but she really did have some really great advice for me at a time in my career where I really needed it. You've been listening to Lauren Steffi, and thank you again for being on. I could go on and on. It's just unbelievable, the (laughs) the writings, and it's just so exciting to have you on. And congratulations on the past, but I can't wait to see the writings of the future. So definitely go to stonycreekpublishing.com to learn more. You've been listening to the Energy Fellows Podcast. I'm Mark Stansbury, the future of energy. 
depends on us. Join us again next week on the Energy Fellows Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com. Thank you.